Amen. Thanks, Joe. Uh, so I didn't introduce myself before. Let me do so now. My name is uh, Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here uh, at uh, Redeemer City. That's good to see you this morning. We continue um, as people scramble in because Joe doesn't pray as long as some of the others that normally pray. So people are running. Um, as we continue this morning in a series on Psalm 23, we're going to do what we've been doing every week, and that is uh, to recite the entire psalm. We're going to be looking particularly at verse 5 uh, this morning, but, um, but in, in light of just the, the flow and the, the argument, the structure of the entire psalm, uh, we're, going to, we're going to read the whole thing together. So I'm going to ask if you would stand with me as we've done. It'll be on the screen behind me. It'll also be printed for you in your worship folder. You can grab a pew Bible in front of you or your Bible that you brought with you from home. But let's just, uh, let's just recite uh, this. We're memorizing it together as a church, so this is good practice. Uh, see how much you can do uh, on your own. Let's, let's read a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be be seated. Uh, This is God's word. Uh, Now this morning, as I said, we're we're coming to verse 5. So you'll see that there are emphasis on those those words. And the title of the sermon this morning, which you might see there in your uh, insert, is The Abundant Life. Jesus, in John's gospel, in the Good Shepherd passage, in John 10, in fact, he made his intentions toward us very clear. He said, the thief, you probably know the verse, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I love the only. The thief comes only. This is his only purpose, to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. C.S. Lewis told the story of a schoolboy who was asked by someone, what is God like? And uh, the boy's response was not too much unlike ours, might be if we were honest. His response was that as far as he could tell, God was the kind of person who was always running around finding the people who were having, them, or who were having fun. He was running around finding the people who were having fun and making them stop. And, and, and in truth, nothing could, be, nothing could be further from the truth of that statement. If you take Jesus' words in John 10 seriously, what he says, what he himself says, is he has not come to drain life of all enjoyment. He's come to show us what really living looks like. Come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He leads in paths of righteousness, we've seen here in verse 3 in Psalm 23. Rightness, in other words, the life, the life that we were created for. And it's true even when we run up against his commands and his words. G.K. Chesterton said that doctrine, the rules of Christianity, he said, well, they may be walls, and they feel like walls sometimes, but Chesterton said they may be walls, but if they're walls, they're the walls of a playground. And I find that really helpful. I mean, he, he went on to say, the more I consider Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and an order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. 
I love that. And so Christianity is full of rules, but those rules are not designed to steal our enjoyment. They're meant to give room for good things to run wild. He's come to bring us life, abundant life, we're told here. And so we come to verse 5, which, look there, says this in a really wonderful way. David sings to the Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And it really is a picture of the kind of life that God has given to us. The kind of life he means for us to enjoy. He's come to give us abundant life. He's not come to steal and take enjoyment away from us. He's come to actually teach us. Because we're, not, we're wrong about it to begin with, what life really looks like. And so we're going to look there at that verse, and you're going to see three things. You're going to see there's a doctrine there. And really the doctrine of the verse is just, it's a meditation on God's generosity. Uh, David is meditating on just how generous God is to him. And so if God is generous, if that really is the doctrine, if that's, if that's the thing we're to learn about him here, then there's a consequence of that doctrine. And if God is generous, then that means that we are full. We're an overflowing cup. That's the truth of our lives. And so we're going to look at the doctrine, God's generosity. The consequence of that doctrine, David says, my cup is full, my cup overflows, and then I want to just apply it in a couple of ways really quickly. So a doctrine, a consequence, and an application, or God's generosity, uh, our overflowing cups, which really uh, leads to the life of faith. That's where we're going to go this morning. Okay, so let's, let's walk through the text uh, together uh, under those headings. First, I think the verse first teaches us, most importantly, it's going to be the bulk of what I really want to talk about this morning. It teaches us that God is a generous host, that generosity is not only a character quality of God, but it is the essence of his being as Trinity, that God's very self is found in giving, not taking, in serving, not being served. And so I want to argue this from three sources. First, I want to argue it from systematic theology. Secondly, I want to argue it from the text. So we're going to, we're going to come to the text after just a brief little foray into some theology. And third, if you think about the gospel, the gospel itself really, really argues this for us too. So three arguments from systematic theology, from the text, and then the implications of the gospel. So let's begin. Let's begin with this idea of systematic theology and the doctrine of the Trinity. Christians believe that God is Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that's important. And the reason it's important is if he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then fundamentally he is loving and generous. Other religions believe in a solitary God, like Marduk, for example, in ancient Babylon, who created humans only so that he could have slaves. Or Allah, who in Islam exists all alone. But here's the thing, if God was eternally alone, then he must be fundamentally self-centered. I mean, the only reason a God like that would have for creating the world would be some kind of private self-gratification. And that, and that really is the essence of Islam. You know, Allah is not personal. You can't know him. He doesn't want to know you. You have one job, and that's to do the things he tells you to do. That's it. But the Christian doctrine of the Trinity changes the whole conception of God because the Trinity means that God is not essentially lonely, but he is a community of persons who have been eternally loving one another. Think about that. So love and generosity are not novel things for him. They are his very essence. In other words, love and generosity is not what God does. It's who he is. Because he's Trinity. Now, Michael Reeves, a 
theologian has written a, a short little book all about this. It's a great, great book. And he, here, here are some of his words. Let me just read them to you. He says, The very nature of the triune God is to be effusive, full of energy, and bountiful. The Father rejoices to have another beside him, and he finds his very self in pouring out his love. Creation, he says, is about the spreading, the diffusion. So all of you essential oil people, the diffusion. See? Everything's helpful. Think about a diffuser, right? Creation is about the diffusion, the spreading, the outward explosion of that love. God, this, this God is the very opposite of the greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness we find in other gods. In his self-giving, he naturally pours forth life and goodness. He is then the source of all that is good. And that, mean, that means that he is not the sort of God who would call people to himself away from happiness and good things. Goodness and ultimate happiness are to be found only with him, not apart from him. And it's such a powerful argument, for me at least. It may not land on you the same way. But I'm the one talking, not you, so I guess I get to talk about the things that get me excited. Such a powerful argument. Uh, and, and the case can be made here in Psalm 23 that God is generous. But, but it's, it's founded upon even this doctrine of the Trinity, that God is love. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. It's his very self. And so we should not be surprised to hear David talk the way he does in the text. So, the argument from systematic theology, God is Trinity, and there, therefore he's fundamentally loving and generous. But then there's the argument from the text. So let's look closely here. In the imagery of verse 5, uh, let's read it again. David says, you prepare a table for me, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, I, I, have, to be, uh, I have to be honest with you uh, about something, um, and that is that the commentators, the really smart people, are divided here about what the dominant metaphor is in this verse. So some say that this is a continuation of the shepherd metaphor that began at the very beginning of the psalm, but others say uh, there's a shifting metaphor here, and David has been describing God as a good shepherd, and now he begins to use a different image. He's describing God as a generous host, and so something's changing. Now, I'm reading two books uh, in my preparation for these sermons, and they're both really great. They've both been really helpful, and the two writers are divided, okay? So one says, this is a continuation of shepherd imagery. The other says, no, there's a shift. Now God's being described as a host. And so the problem for me is that what they both have to say is so good. It's so powerful. They portray their respective images so vividly uh, that I decided I don't want to make a decision here. Instead, I'm just going to talk about both. Whether what you have here in verse 5 is God as good shepherd or God as host, the text, in either case... It's making the same point. It's driving home the reality of his generosity and hospitality. So it doesn't really matter. They both prove the same point. Side by side, I think they prove it better than if I were to pick only one. So we're going to go with both. Okay, you with me? So let's just talk about both for a minute. So let's talk about the shepherd, this shepherd imagery that's been dominating the psalm to this point. Philip Keller, who sees this as the continuation of shepherd imagery, it should be noted uh, that he himself is a shepherd. So that might contribute to why he falls in that camp. He says, uh, he believes that the shepherd imagery continues here. So he says, he just kind of exegetes the passage. He says, you prepare a table before me. He says, what, what this is, is this, this refers to the high plateaus where the sheep range in the summers. They're, they're called mesas. If you go out west, you know they talk about mesas. And so there are these high, high plateaus of land called mesas uh, that the shepherds would take 
their flocks to in the summers. And, and the word, the Spanish word, the mesa, Spanish word is actually the word for table. So if you've ever seen it, it looks like a table kind of jutting up out of the earth. And so the shepherd, he says, has to begin early in the spring to ready the mesas for the sheep. So he prepares, he prepares a table land for them. He, he goes and he surveys uh, the land and then spreads salt and minerals at strategic spots to keep the sheep well-fed and strong. He decides where his camp is going to be located uh, during the summer months. Uh, and, he, and he does so to put it as close to the, the strategic spots uh, that would keep the, the, you know, the good bedding places for the sheep so that they can be near to the shepherd when they lay down at night to sleep. Uh, Keller himself tells a story of, of having to go through the summer pastures. He's, like, he's a shepherd. Uh, and, he, and he said, you know, he would take his children, they would go through, and they would look for poisonous weeds. And, um, and he said they would spend, uh, just think about this. Can't you see a father and his little kids going through 150 acres of land day after day after day pulling individual, every single poisonous weed out of the ground to make sure that the sheep didn't grab one? Isn't that amazing? But this is what shepherds do. He didn't want the sheep to accidentally eat something that would harm them. So the shepherd, he does this. He looks for signs of predators so he can avoid those areas. He clears out the water holes so that the sheep can get to them easily and they don't lack for anything to drink. Um, the shepherd makes all the preparations. He spends months making all of these preparations so that when the sheep are driven up onto the table lands, they have everything they need and more. Everything is prepared for them and it's ready for them. And so it's the care and it's the generosity of the, of the shepherd that causes the sheep to thrive. But he says, David goes on, you anoint my head with oil. And, and he says, this is also something shepherds do, that sheep are prone to nose flies, which just sound awful. They buzz around the heads of the sheep and then they get into the nostrils and they lay eggs, they lay eggs in the mucus of the, of the sheep's noses. And then it'll turn to, into worms and parasites that just drive the sheep crazy. It causes them a great deal of discomfort. It's so bad they'll go to trees and knock their heads against the trees to try to, you know, and then kill themselves and run themselves uh, ragged. They can't sleep. They're bothered endlessly. They've, you know, they, they're in this frenzy attempt to find relief. So what does the shepherd do? Well, he takes some essential oils. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not kidding. I can't remember what the mixture is, but it's some, something like that, you know. He takes some oil. At the first sign of flies, he applies an ointment to the heads of the sheep that keeps the flies away. And, what, and, and Keller goes on to describe, it's this almost instantaneous change of behavior. That the sheep who've been wearing themselves out, trying to rid themselves of the flies, now begin to settle down. Gone is the aggravation. Gone is the frenzy. Gone is, is the irritability and the restlessness. The sheep now begin to eat calmly and lie down in peaceful contentment because of the shepherd's thoughtfulness attention, and generosity. Now, what's the application? The application is this. God is always doing this in our lives. Going before us and preparing places of flourishing and enjoyment for us, making all of the arrangements ahead of time so that when we get there, everything's ready. Listen, we wake up every morning into the generosity of God, into days that have already been prepared for us, made by our good shepherd for us to rejoice in. You don't have to worry about a thing. No matter what happens today, it is part of the preparations 
that have already been made. You have one job today. You and I, we have one job today, and it's the same job we have every day, and that is to rejoice in the day the generosity of the Lord your shepherd has made for you. He's a good shepherd. Okay, but then there's, then there's the other image. So maybe it is that this is a continuation. It makes sense to me. Does it make sense to you? Did I make a good argument for that? See, I told you it's hard to know which way to go here. But then what, what the majority of the commentators do uh, is they, they go this other direction. They say what's, what's happening here is actually there's a change. Uh, we're now beginning to, to think about the image of God as a generous host. So Kenneth Bailey says that the imagery is that. It's changing. And, and through verse 4, God is pictured as a, as a good shepherd. But now what's happening here in verse 5, he is, he is now being pictured by David as a generous host. And the evidence for him is, is too overwhelming. And if I'm honest, if you made me choose, if you put a gun to my head, I would probably go this direction too. So to prepare a table for me here, he says, is, is, is literally the same phrase as to m- prepare a meal. It's the, it's the act of preparing a meal for people to come over to, and to enjoy. To anoint my head with oil, as David says, God, you anoint my head with oil, it, that is a reference to the anointing that was the custom of the day. That was an act of hospitality. When people came to eat at your house, the first thing you would do, you'd have some anointing oil by the by the door, and you'd anoint their head with oil as a greeting and as a way of just lavishing generosity and hospitality on them. So you might remember the story in Luke 7 where Jesus was rudely treated by Simon the Pharisee at a dinner party in his home because there was a scandalous woman there at Jesus' feet. You remember the story? And she was anointing his feet with oil and, and her tears and wiping them with her hair. And Jesus turned to Simon at one point and rebuked him, and he said, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed them with ointment. And so it was a custom. So what the psalmist is saying here is God, is, God throws a party. He laughs his generosity. I mean, my cup overflows. Imagines, if you've ever been to a really fancy restaurant, it kind of drives me crazy, to be honest with you, where you take a sip of water and somebody's there immediately, right, filling your glass back up. You ever, you ever experienced that? It's like, just get, I, 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 just leave me alone for a second. But then it's strangely comforting, isn't it? To know that there's like five people paying attention to you, make sure you always have everything you need. So hovering waiters, every time you take a sip, someone rushes over to fill your cup. You never have an empty cup. Lavish generosity and hospitality. That's what's being pictured here. Now, there's a cultural divide that we have to kind of try to work to to close so that we properly understand exactly what David is saying here. George Lamso, who is an Assyrian author and theologian, reflecting on this part of Psalm 23. This is fascinating to me. He said, In the East, a man's fame is spread by means of his table and lavish hospitality rather than his possessions. Strangers and neighbors alike discuss tables where they've been guests. So Kenneth Bailey further comments. He says, In traditional Middle Eastern culture, even today, when you want the community to know that you've required wealth, listen to this. This, is, this goes so against the grain of our Western American uh, mindset. He says, when you want the community to know that you've acquired wealth, you do not buy an expensive car or a large house with acres of grass around it. Rather, guess what you do? Rather, you host a meal with three times as much food on the table as the numerous guests that you've invited can eat. And that's how you show people that you have all the money that you need. So Westerners show off their wealth with possessions. Drive by, notice the big house I live in. Please don't knock on the door. Leave me alone, by the way. 
But if you'd notice the fancy car that's parked out front, I'd appreciate that so that you can drive on envious of the things that I have. But in the East, you do all of that at the table. Um, my wife, <laughs> who's not here this morning, and it's always scary to talk about her when she's not here, but my wife makes dinner for seven people every night. She does this over and over again for people who have no ability to appreciate the time and energy it takes to plan meals, go to the store, get all of the stuff you need, cook healthy food, shove it down the kids' throats when they don't want to eat it, plate it, serve all the food on the table that has been carefully set and so forth. Now, we help her a little, but honestly, probably only a little. It's mostly her doing. But I was thinking this week, you know, it's one of the places where she is most like God. Because that is the very thing that he is always doing. Rich food, Isaiah 52, 55.2 says. Isn't that what it says? Come and eat rich food. So you won't find ramen noodles or hamburger helper on God's table. It's all butter and cream sauce. And more than you can possibly eat. Because that's the way he does things. That's what's being conveyed here. So the text, whether you go the direction of the good shepherd or whether you go the direction of the generous host, the point is the God that we serve, the God that David is singing about is a radically, lavishly generous and faithful God. So the Trinity, the images of the text, but lastly, before we move on, the gospel itself teaches this as well because one of the features of the text that I didn't mention, David says, look there, David says that all of this is done in the presence of my enemies. He, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, what's this? Well, Kenneth Bailey is really helpful here, too. He says that this means that God demonstrates costly love to us, knowing uh, that those who are hostile to us will be watching and that their hostility for us will be extended to him because of his being generous to us. Let me explain. Uh, he doesn't care, by the way. It doesn't bother him. So but Bailey gives an illustration that's really helpful. He says, imagine, imagine a European-American in a Southern American city in the 19th century inviting an African-American to be their guest at the most expensive and obviously all-white restaurant in the middle of town. Right, the association, nobody would have done that because the association would bring the generous host intense hostility from the community. And yet this is the very thing that you see here, and it's the very thing that happens in the parable of the prodigal son, for example. When the father sees his son on the horizon, if you're familiar with the story, the son has left and insulted the father and gone off and wasted his inheritance. And he's come home, and the father sees him on the horizon, and he runs to meet him. He runs because he's eager to embrace him, but also he runs because he needs to get to him before the rest of the village does. Now, it's lost on us because we're so conditioned towards individualism, but the community would have hated the prodigal son. And when he came back, they would have. Custom would have mandated that they beat him severely because of the shame that he brought not only to his father, but to the whole, to the whole town. And so the father runs to rescue him. And what happens is, as he runs, he shames himself to honor his son publicly. And then what does he do? Do you remember the story? He throws a feast 
that the whole community would have been invited to. And Bailey says that the party was not a celebration of the son's return. It would have been a celebration of the father's costly generosity. They hate the son. He's a no-good millennial, I guess, or whatever, right? I mean, those of you guys that are millennials just get a terrible name. I mean, that good-for-nothing millennial kid, right? And all the older people in the community just, just peppering him with all kinds of accusation. They would have beat him and thrown, you know, they would have wanted to tear him to pieces. They hate him, but they would have come to the party. Because as much as custom dictated that they, they, that they treat the son this way, custom would have dictated that they show honor to the father for his costly generosity and love to his undeserving son. So the prodigal would have gone to bed that night with something like this ringing in his ears. My father ordered a banquet for me in the presence of my enemies to reconcile me not only to himself, but to bring me back into the community. And it is a picture of the gospel. The father, loved by the community, dishonored himself and risked the community's disapproval in order to bring honor to his son and restore him, not only to himself, but to all of the enemies invited to the party. In Luke 19, Jesus, beloved by the crowds, went to eat at the table of a man named Zacchaeus, much hated because he was a tax collector. And what was the result? Do you remember? Jesus, much loved, went to eat at the house of this man, much hated by the community because he was a tax collector. And the result was that Jesus was hated by the crowds for keeping such company, and Zacchaeus was honored. Again and again, Jesus faces hostility because of who he chooses to eat his meals with. His table turned the world upside down. And it was, of course, a picture of the gospel because on the cross, on the cross, he spread a table before us in the presence of our greatest enemy, God himself. His body broken and his blood poured out. The bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin and gave to us his righteousness. He bore our shame to honor us. He endured God's wrath so that we might have his smile. And according to the Bible, the greatest proof, the greatest proof of God's generosity for you is the gift of his son, his greatest treasure for you. Now let's try to sum all of this up, okay? And let me sum it up by saying this. In every other religion, what matters most is what you do for God, what you do to serve God, but not in Christianity. Don't bring that into Christianity. All the other religions hinge on my sacrifice, but Christianity hinges on God's generosity. You don't come to God to give. You come to him to get. You come to him with empty hands. You come to him with no money. Isaiah 55 says that's the way Christianity works. You don't become a Christian when you start working for God. You actually become a Christian when you stop trying to work for God and you let God work for you. One of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible to me is Luke 12, 27, where Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. My very heartbeat, he says, is to do for others, not insist they do for me. And it's hard to fathom, I know. It's hard to think of God that way, but it's the way that he has revealed himself because Christianity is grace. So God's generous. That's what Psalm 24, 5 teaches. Really, that's all it teaches us. But there is an implication. So if that's the doctrine, and again, that's, that's 80% of what I want to say this morning. There is a consequence of this doctrine. And look here with me. The consequence is, if he is an inexhaustible fountain of life and goodness and love and power, 
And if he is constantly pouring out his goodness and love and abundance into our lives, then it makes sense that David responds by singing, verse 5, my cup overflows. If God is a generous host, then that makes you, if you're in Christ, an overflowing cup. You'll always have all you need. You'll never run out. Your life is not scarcity. It is abundance. God's generosity ensures our fullness. But what do we learn here, really quickly? Well, we have to make sense of, first, this teaches us about our unbelief. We have to talk about sin. Because the strategy of evil has not changed. It is still the same as at the very beginning. The scheme of Satan is to get you to start doubting God's generosity. Because if he can get you to do that, you'll begin to think of yourself as an empty cup that needs to be filled. And that's what happened to the first man and the first woman in Genesis 3. Listen to this. In the reality of abundance, they bought the lie of scarcity. Think about that. In the reality of abundance, they bought the lie of scarcity, and that's where all sin starts. God is not generous. I can't count on him. I better take care of myself. But what's the truth? What's the reality? They, the first man and the first woman, they were in a garden where their every need and want had been thought of and accounted for, a banquet banqueting table prepared for them by their creator with every imaginable delight spread before them for them to take at their pleasure. And they ignored all of that and instead began to form an opinion of him in their imagination that he was not generous, but stingy and begrudging. And so if they would have the things they felt they needed, they would have to pry them loose from his hands. All of that happened before sin. They first began to believe the lie of scarcity. They reached out because they believed and they took a hold of the fruit that was not theirs to grab to feed themselves because they did not trust his heart. Do you know what I mean by scarcity? It's something like this. The world is a harsh place. I'm all alone. God is not generous, so there's only so much to go around, and I'd better be careful how I use my resources because I might run out, and I'd better take care of me because no one else is going to take care of me. Listen to me. That's why people leave marriages. It's why we're stingy and not generous with our stuff. It's why we have such a hard time forgiving one another. If I don't take care of me, who's going to take care of me? Believing that's the way the world works. That's the beginning of every sin. So if unbelief is living as if your life is scarcity in the middle of abundance, then faith is living as if your life is abundance, even when faced with the reality of scarcity, because what matters most is always God's generosity and not your need. And the best example I know to illustrate this is the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospels. There, the disciples are confronted with, first, overwhelming need. They have 5,000 mouths to feed. Second, not only overwhelming need, but there's inadequate resources. They have at their disposal a few loaf of breads, of bread and a handful of sardines. And that is, in truth, where we find ourselves often facing overwhelming need with inadequate supplies. And the temptation is to do what the disciples at first tried to do, to walk away. But the lesson of the story is that there is always a third part of the equation that should tip the scales toward faith. Because even when we find ourselves in the middle of a situation where we are overexposed and under-resourced, Don't forget, there's always the promise of God's abundance. And it's not our resources, not our strength, it's not our plans or our connections that creates the abundance. It's God's generosity. And if that's true, then even when you experience scarcity, when your physical strength wears out, or when when the bank account is empty, or when your 
when you're emotional, uh, you're worn out emotionally, whatever it is, if there's scarcity that you're experiencing, your life is still abundance. You're still an overflowing cup because you have a generous father in heaven who never runs out of strength and grace to share with you. Christian, what's the truth of your life? If you're a Christian, what's the truth of your life? I like the verse from John chapter 1. From his fullness, John writes, we've received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. And so if you're a Christian, that's what's happening in your life right now. It may not feel like it. My job is to, to remind you of what's true because you walked in here not believing it to be true this morning. Here's what's true of your life. If you're a Christian, what's happening to you right now is this. Grace upon grace. God acts towards you in kindness and generosity again and again and again, one after another after another, like, like going to the beach and the waves start crashing over you and one comes and knocks you off your feet and you recover and catch your breath just in time for the next wave to send you back under the water. Wave after wave, you're drowning in grace. It may not feel like it, but do you know that? Is that the way you imagine your life? If so, if so, then your whole life will be characterized by faith. Remember, Psalm 23 is an argument for believing and trusting God. And you want to know the degree to which you're living by faith? You measure faith by your willingness to risk for the gospel. Two Sundays ago, I, we had a gathering at our, of all of our churches in our little church planning network, eight churches, 850 people or so. A lot of people reflected on social media on the night, my favorite reflection was by Kristen Strawbridge, who's Timo Strawbridge's daughter. She just said this. It was really marvelous to me. She said, growing up in an environment where it was normal to take risks for the gospel has changed my life forever. And I just was undone by that. Growing up, I oh, love that. Uh, it's normal to take risks for the gospel. Growing up in an environment where it's normal to do that. Now I'm out of time. But let me finish by explaining what I think she meant. And it's just this. There's only one way to follow Jesus. And by the way, he doesn't make it easy. Can I get an amen? You with me? He doesn't make it easy. There's only one way to follow him, and that's that you have to take risks. So to love those that love you, that's great, but it's a safe investment. To love your enemies, that's a risk. To give 10% of your tithe and of your income as a tithe, that's a fairly tame thing. I mean, it's hard, but it's fairly tame. To give until it hurts, that's a risk. To forgive someone who has hurt you, that's hard, but usually a really good idea. But to forgive someone who hurts you over and over and over again the same way, that's a risk. To stay put where you are, that's safe. But to go and pack your family and go to another country to tell people about Jesus, that's a risk. I mean, to grow a church by providing programming that people are looking for, that's a safe play too. Churches do it all the time to, with great success. But to plant churches and give money and leaders away, that's a risk. But the call of the gospel is the call to risk because the gospel assures us that in Jesus Christ, God is for us. And if he is for us, who can be against us? The gospel propels risk. God has given Jesus Christ for us. And if he did that, won't he also with him give us all things? So let's go, right? Let's dream big. Let's dream big dreams, God-sized dreams. 
gospel side streams. But if you believe your life is scarcity, you won't risk. You'll grasp, you'll control, you'll micromanage, you'll be stingy with grace. But Hebrews 10 talks about those who shrink back, but we are not those who shrink back, Hebrews says, but those who believe, who believe that the world is charged with God's love and generosity. And it's not a harsh desert place. It's a banqueting table overflowing with all of your favorite foods, free of charge, prepared and set before you by God's grace. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus doesn't mean there won't be times of scarcity. It's even better than that. He means that even in times of scarcity, your life is still abundance in reality because it is his generosity which pours into your life through a gospel faucet that never turns off that makes you an overflowing cup. Do you feel empty? Are you thirsty? Don't spend your money on what will never satisfy you. Jesus Christ says, come, feast on me in your hearts by faith. Cast your soul upon my generosity and goodness. Put your money away. It's no good here. I can give you the bread of life. I have living water. And if you drink from me, you will never thirst again. In fact, streams of living water will begin to well up within you and spill out over the edges of your life. I, if you come to Jesus, he would say, I can make your cup overflow but we have to go to him. And that's what we do now in these last moments of our service. So would you pray with me? So Father, as we sing now, would you do just that? Would you so call us to yourself and so make yourself known to us in the words that we sing and just by the spirits moving through the word in our midst this morning that we would find our, our, our hearts enlarged with the thought of your love and kindness to us, that we would not, that we would, that we would see through the illusion of scarcity in our lives and see that we woke up today into a, a day that has been prepared before the foundation of the world by our faithful and generous Father in heaven. And we have one job, and that is to rejoice. To rejoice in you and to rejoice in the preparations that you've made for us today, but our hearts are so prone to unbelief. Forgive us. Forgive us despite all of the evidence to the contrary, how we still cling to the idea that I got to take care of me because nobody else is. What an insult. What an insult to you in light of all. We have breath and it's a beautiful day outside and the sun has broken through the clouds and we have a thousand reasons to be grateful. Father, forgive us our short-sightedness and our unbelief and come and heal our stubborn hearts. Convince our hearts of your love and generosity for us and that we might have large hearts enlarged by the gospel to go and take risks because that, that risk-taking, that living by faith is what brings honor and glory to you. And we want that, but it's something you must do in us. And so again, we're at your mercy. It's a good place to be. Keep us there until we come to you in faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the words of this benediction set the conditions by, uh, of which he sends us into. No matter what you leave to find yourself in, whether it be you know, an hour from now or whether it be later this week, uh, the truth of these words is that uh, the day and the week that you move into now have been prepared for you by your Heavenly Father. And so the reality is abundance, not scarcity, even when it feels the opposite. So hear the words of this benediction. This is the promise yet again of God's great generosity to you. And then go in faith and serve him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.